You're listening to the Free As You Like public edit of Nonfic Pod, brought to you by Burnham Cod. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more, why not look for Patreon Nonfic Pod? And there, for just a very small monthly payment, you can support us to make this show and hear the amazing bonus content in which our weekly guest tells us the shit they wish they'd known when they first started out. Hey, welcome to Nonfic Pod with me, Burn, and me, Cod. <laughs> so, what chancer have we got this week? Oh well, I don't know if you know her, but uh, she's a pretty, pretty well. She's pretty. What can we say? Hot stuff. She's pretty. <laughs> she's got a pretty good brain. She's got a pretty exciting book. She's the best co-host. You, Ben. You're the guest today. You are the guest. Oh, I am the guest today. <laughs> I have been banging on about how to build a human for weeks, but I finally get to chat to Georgie about this this book that I am still so passionate about. There's loads of science, loads of really wacky ideas, and I am just so thrilled that it is out there in the world just being by parents' sides, being on their side and helping them be on the side of their children. Dr. Emma Byrne is an actual robot scientist, a robot scientist who writes for Wired, The Guardian, Forbes and the FT. She frequently appears on the BBC and Sky News talking about the future of robotics and artificial intelligence, has packed out pubs and convention halls with her talks and, in case you haven't noticed yet, is also the esteemed founder and co-host of this here podcast, Nonfic Pod. Emma's interest in neuroscience led to her first popular book, Swearing is Good for You, The Amazing Science of Bad Language, which is, I would say, a fucking great read. Her forthcoming book, How to Build a Human, is going to be our focus for this show, and I'll let her introduce it, though not before sharing my favourite line of the whole damn thing. When it comes to communicating details about diet, health, sex and mood, an anal gland can be surprisingly eloquent. Burr, how would you describe... How to build a human. Well, for a start, I'm so glad you enjoyed my anal gland there. It is a madcap tour through the science of what is going on in your, well, mainly your kids' heads. There is a bit about what goes on in the heads of carers. It is not a mummy book. I will say that from the top. The science shows that caregivers of any age, any gender, no matter how they become caregivers, the sheer neurological demands of responding to the needs of a child drive changes in the brain and in our endocrine systems, our hormones that affect men and women alike, that affects you know, whether or not you become a parent through a blended family, through giving birth, through adoption, through fostering. We also see similar changes when we have to care for other kinds of people, elderly relatives, or if you're working in the caring professions. So, This idea that somehow there is a direct link between the act of giving birth and the creation of some kind of parental brain is just not borne out by the science. Let me give you an example. Prolactin is the name of the hormone that promotes lactation. 
And as with so many things in biology, it was given its name based on what it was first observed doing. But prolactin rises in the bodies and in the blood profiles of of men who become parents, as well as women who become parents. Prolactin seems to play lots of roles when it comes to motivating you to be able to take care of your child. In fact, what it seems to act as is a neurological fertiliser. When you look at rats, for example, prolactin allows them to generate a whole lot of new neural connections when a new pup arrives in the litter. And then those connections are selectively pruned as the the rat dad or rat adoptive dad starts to recognise the behaviour of the particular offspring that they're caring for. Rats are biparental species like our own. We have a very similar setup in our own brains, albeit that we don't tend to eat our young if we feel like they're not thriving. Yell at, maybe. You will sit down and do your homeschooling. Uh, (laughs) Although most of the book does just kind of veer away from yelling at children but the stresses and the joys of parenting are known to absolutely anyone who's ever been placed in responsibility of a child's well-being so it's a book for anyone who is thinking about or is or even has been a parent or a caregiver of some kind and it has cool bits about anal glands (laughs) i should point out that is dog anal glands not child anal glands i I don't promote the idea of sniffing your child's butt, but our own forms of communication are somewhat different. I'm glad you uh, specified, but also uh, disappointed. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Right. So tell me, Emma, how did the idea for this book come about? Or is that a really stupid, obvious question? Not at all. It's quite a departure from the first book, which, as you pointed out, was about swearing. That said, I haven't yet done a search for in the text, but I suspect there is at least as much swearing in this book. Um, And that's not even including terms like anal gland, largely because parenting is such an emotive issue. I remember, I think I opened the book by saying, I remember when my daughter was born, the first few weeks I spent waiting for the grown-ups to arrive. I was just waiting for someone to come and tell me how to figure this stuff out. And I realised that, you know, I would try these things that I'd been told should work, that the theory said should work, and they just didn't seem to be working for our daughter, that things would seem to change. They'd work one minute and then not work the next. And I couldn't quite work out why I felt lonely. I felt frightened. I felt stressed and I felt bored at the same time. And I realised I'd felt that way before. And that was during my doctoral research. Having a child is very much like starting a research project. There are lots of people who've gone before who can tell you how they did it. But absolutely nobody can tell you how you should do it. And you will feel at times that you can't do it. And yet you need to just keep putting one foot in front of the other and learning as much as you can. And so I realised that the skills that I'd learnt like I'm not being flippant here at all. The skills I learned as a PhD student were the ones that carried me through those first few months of caregiving. There was curiosity, openness, resilience, the willingness to seek out help, a degree of self-compassion, which to be honest, I'm better at now than I was when I was doing my doctorate. So all of those things were extremely useful to me. And I realised that the thing that I wanted to share in this sort of parenting manifesto is that you are 
an absolute trailblazer whenever you are raising a child. It doesn't matter if it's your first or your seventh. It doesn't matter if you adopted them or gave birth to them. This child in front of you and the situation that you are in right now is unique. No one has been exactly here before. So if you read a book and it says your child should be doing X and they're not doing X, throw away the book, not the child's. So tell me a bit more about that manifesto angle, because there are there are bits in the book that take a more of a political stance with parenting. That makes it I mean, it's already a very interesting read, but I find that makes it especially interesting read because it's kind of transcending the science a little bit or maybe transcending is not the word. I feel like science probably transcends everything. But do you know what I mean? There's a there's some crossover there. And how did you feel treading in that direction of political statement occasionally here and there in the book? Yeah, I didn't set out to write a political book. And I think one of the reasons why I'm so damn comfortable at having done so is that for once and surprisingly, the research is very, very clear that we need to be supporting caregivers far more than we are. So, for example, in terms of things like picky eating, uh, children who are prone to obesity or food aversions, the things that you can do to prevent that are things like making sure that families have time to eat together, making sure that families have time to cook together, making sure that families have space to see how food is grown, making sure that variety is something that families can access. When you think about the way that so many people live with precarious jobs, precarious incomes in the gig economy, or reliant on something like universal credit, crammed into housing that is ever smaller and ever more precarious, with less and less time in overscheduled lives, both their own lives being overscheduled and their children's. This research that shows that programmes that take families and say, we're going to spend a week where we're going to take an hour every evening sort of deciding what to get from this sort of pretend shop that we've set up and deciding as a family will help you decide together how to you know what you're going to have and how to cook it and that kids ate a much more varied diet and so did their parents and it was much healthier and they spoke a lot more about things to do not just with diet but also to do with emotion and well-being and that sitting down and having a meal together three or four times a week is by far the strongest indicator of families that will end up not having problems later on. But we've set up a society that makes doing that nigh on impossible for a huge swathe of the population. So that was when I started to get political. But then I looked at things like fat taxes, which do not work. Uh, Usually people are not buying cheap food because they're trying to economise. They're buying cheap food because there isn't another option. In the US in particular, but increasingly in the UK, people on lower incomes tend to live in things that are called food deserts, where really good fresh fruit, fresh vegetables, fresh meat, if you're that way inclined, is not available. And that the only place to get fresh fruit within a walkable radius from a considerable number of households in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, is McDonald's. 
That is horrifying. If you are reliant on McDonald's for your fruit and vegetable input, you're not getting a varied diet. So I started to get more and more political as I realised that all of these things that the research shows that says taking time to be relaxed and curious with your children, taking time to eat together, taking time to have discussions, making sure that you have a relaxed, straightforward bedtime routine. How difficult is that? Even in the time before a pandemic, if, for example, you're an Uber driver, you're a cleaner, you're somebody who is working in some industry that has horrible presenteeism demands, you are caring for other members of the family that are potentially elderly or disabled. We are increasingly away from our extended birth families. That's not to say that people don't make their own extended families, but the networks of support that caregivers need and the structures of life and income that they need just aren't there in so many places. And you're much more likely to struggle to have those prerequisites the lower socioeconomic status you have. So I got very political when I realised that the difference in outcomes at the end of childhood is so little to do with parental choice and so much to do with parental circumstance. And that, God, it's when I got really mad. <laughs> so yeah, it does. Towards the end, I I set out my sort of 10 point plan for what I would like to see us do as a society for parenting. And it is things and, and it would be not just parents, all of us, parents or not, would have far greater well-being with less precarity in work, less precarity in housing, far less rates of of poverty, dependence, deprivation. What we need, in short, is a much more egalitarian society. If we want to have happy, healthy children who will go on to be the adults of the next generation, then we need to do something about the state of inequality in our society, which... Yeah, I was surprised that I went there because it's not how I set out to go. But for once, the research is fairly flippant, unequivocal. Burn for PM. <laughs> Would you be able to explain to our listeners the concept of weird and even weird moms and how that's influenced teaching about parental things and, and everything else by, by certain respects? Yeah, particularly studies in psychology, neuroscience, anything that is to, that takes you know human behaviour as its unit of analysis. For a start, human behaviour is complex and it is highly contextual. So the idea that you can reproduce human behaviour in a lab is, and psychologists acknowledge that, it, it is somewhat artificial. But weird is this phenomenon that in order to have access to a lab or a bunch of psychologists or um, an fMRI scanner or EEG machines, you usually need to be near a university, basically. And that means that most research is done in places that are Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. So the nations that have these research setups tend to also have at least four out of those five identifiers. We get some non-Western perspectives from Japan and increasingly China. 
there aren't very many non-industrialized perspectives. You sometimes get anthropologists who will go out and repeat psychology experiments in places like Vanuatu, which is pre-industrial, assuming that there is this kind of, it's how it's usually described. I think the term pre-industrial is problematic, but it's non-industrial. So understanding what stuff is universal versus what stuff is an artefact of being in an industrialized nation versus what is an artifact of being in an industrialized nation and in a science lab is very, very hard to tease out. So I really tried to get as many cross-cultural studies as I could in the book. The Pacific Islands, they must be so bored of anthropologists. It's like, it seems like one, one bunch of anthropologists flies out and the next bunch fly in. And at this point, you're like, this is not an uncontacted people anymore. This is a people whose main life history for the last 30 years has been sort of generations of talking to anthropologists. However, when we compare behaviour in as naturalistic a setting as possible, in as many different cultural contexts as possible, we can start to see which types of behaviour are definitely not universal, because different things seem natural and axiomatic in different settings. So to give the example of sharing, I was assumed that sharing is caring and sharing is natural and turn-taking is natural. But in much more collective societies, the idea that you would ostentatiously and deliberately divide up something saying you can have this bit and I will have that bit is considered, frankly, pathological. Because if you live in a collectivist society... Yeah, I might currently have this thing, but if you need it, it's yours. Whereas you might currently have that thing, and if I need it, I know it's mine. Why would we divvy up things between us when we hold these things in common? My favourite experiment on this that I mentioned in the book is when kids were given this sort of fishing hook that allowed them to fish containers with beads in out of a, a tall jar, and then they were allowed to make bracelets at the end. And... I think it was a West African research site, cannot for the life of me remember where, being compared with somewhere in Europe that I think was Germany. But basically in the in the West African group, the kids, whoever was better at fishing out the beads in the challenge part of it, or the, the bit where they set up the control of the experiment, just kept the hook the whole time and got as many beads as possible. Whereas in the Northern European cohort, it was like, I'll take a turn with the hook, then you can take a turn with the hook, and then you. And they showed the videos to the corresponding children in the other culture. And both sets of kids were just completely baffled by the other one's behaviours. And it's not that either are wrong. It's just that the cultural context in which the German kids, I think they were German kids, were being raised, was completely different than the cultural context of this West African people who just hold things in common. I cannot understand why, you know, if so-and-so is the best person at gathering fuel, if so-and-so is the best person at getting meat, you don't demand a turn with the axe or a turn with the spear. You let them get on with it. (laughs) I love watching the differences that emerge when you take these same setups and go to different places, because it tells me that there isn't a right way for your child to behave. There are more or less well-adapted ways for them to behave, given the society you're trying to get them to fit into. But 
short of daubing excrement on the walls, which I don't think is found in, in any society, there are a lot of behaviours that might be considered aberrant somewhere, perfectly acceptable somewhere else. And you have to ask yourself, like with the sleep disorders chapter, it turns out that most of what we think of as sleep disorders are actually parental annoyance at being woken up. But for most of our history, we have not been monophasic sleepers. It's the Industrial Revolution that made us go to bed at night and wake up in the morning ready for a full day's work with no nap in the middle. And it's artificial light that shifted that going to sleep time to much, much later after the sun had set. So all this stuff we take for granted, all this stuff we think is natural isn't. Oh, and the piss boiler. Do you want to know about the piss boiler? Well, I know you know because you've read it. The piss boiling rage was when I read the studies that showed that babies will sleep for eight or nine hours in the night from about two to three months old if they're bottle fed, not if they're breastfed. So this idea that, oh, is your baby sleeping through yet? Uh, might have been true of my parents' generation, where bottle feeding was, you know, you would move to that very quickly. It was convenient. It was known. It was scientific. It was quite modern. And your baby's stomach would be full all night and they'd sleep through. Breast milk doesn't do that. It doesn't stay in the stomach as long. And babies wake up for regular two to three hour feedings. So we've got these two countervailing, like internally inconsistent desires that we'd sort of foist on parents early on, which is breastfeed as long as you can, but also try and get your baby into sleeping through the night. Those two do not coexist unless you have a baby with a surprisingly chill metabolism or you have like, I don't know, weirdly high protein breast milk, in which case, what are you eating, girl? <laughs> Oh, God. I love the fact that I didn't find easy answers because as a parent, I found that very reassuring. This stuff is not easy. And this stuff is very much about being scientific, being curious, being resilient, being as, as calm as you can in the face of adversity, rather than shotgunning someone else's science results and going oh that's yeah children are meant to withstand marshmallows or otherwise they'll grow up to be selfish cretins not true i i yearn for a far more broad and accepting way of looking at childhood based on the fact that we know that childhood differs so much throughout the world and throughout history Right, we are at that break point, that watershed time where if you're a patron of Nonfic Pod, you are about to hear the fabulous shit I wish I'd known section from our very own Burn. If you are not a patron of Nonfic Pod, it's okay. There's still time to change and become a better human. How to build a better human who is a. No, sorry, I shouldn't. I, but you know what I mean, guys. Enroll, subscribe, do all the things. Just look us up on Patreon, non-fic pod. And from just two pounds a month, you can support the podcast, access plenty of bonus material and be our forever friends. Live in our hearts. Yeah, I mean, everyone who supports the podcast is our forever friend. But Patreon backers really do make this show possible. You guys are the ones that make it possible to get the transcripts done, to make the show much more accessible. You pay for our hosting, which means that we can get our show to your ears in the most efficient way possible. So without our Patreon backers, we could not do this. And we appreciate you more than we can say. Anyone who joins us on this journey into nonfiction, we love you. 
very much. I'm doing the heart hands, which is ridiculous because this is an audio medium, but Georgie and I are both giving you the heart hands because we love you. Feel those hearts, feel those hearts. And if you subscribe to Patreon today, you'll be able to hear Burn saying this. Means we still outnumber the little sods. And this. Looking out into the trees and across the road going, oh, there's a bird there. Because it's break time, a chat about Teddy Bear Club, please. Oh, yes, this is Teddy Club. So one of the things that I talked about recently is something that happened after I wrote the book. But I've just mentioned it in an article for the Irish Independent. And it's just too good a story not to share. We kept an open mind about our daughter's sleep patterns. I mean, not initially. Initially, we were just like, just go the fuck to sleep, stay asleep. We are fed up of being woken in the middle of the night because it's always, you know, sleep cycles never quite coincide. And it's always when you're in the depth of the best part of the sleep and someone comes running in and it's like, mama, dada. And so we started looking at, when I was researching for the book, started looking at sleep and the fact that biphasic sleep is the most common sleep pattern throughout history, that staying asleep the whole night is actually really uncommon. And that there's a genetic component to insomnia too. And I'm a raging insomniac and I deal with that by reading myself back to sleep. But the five-year-old is only just getting to the point that she can read a book. You know, she can read a picture book, but it's not the easiest thing for her to do and it's more stimulating than it is soporific so we had this chat we decided that we don't care as much about her sleeping through as we care about us not all being cranky bastards in the mornings we're all fucking tired so she is now allowed to turn on her bedside light she has a little light by the side of her bed and she has teddy club and her bed is full of teddies there's a flamingo and a panda and a, about five different giraffes. And I will sometimes be awake with my own insomnia at about one in the morning, reading, you know, just making sure that the murderer gets their comeuppance and all is right with the world so I can fall back asleep again. And I will hear this voice from my daughter's room going, no, giraffe, you're going in time out because you did a fart on Flamingo's head and you don't do farting on people's heads in Teddy Club. And she'll do this for like an hour with her best teacher club voice of putting various teddies in time out or teaching them their phonics, which is adorable. And it's phenomenal. Instead of her coming to us, she has this thing to do that is engaging and it lets her process whatever weird dreams she's been having. And it lets her, you know, deal with this whole sort of biphasic thing of the first sleep, the second sleep. You know, what do you do in the meantime if you're not able to go out and milk a cow or whatever? And we're all much happier for it. But I have never read in any parenting manual the idea that having your child put their teddies in time out for farting on each other's heads is the answer to getting a good night's sleep. So that is why I say parent like a scientist, stay open-minded, curious and creative and resilient and just keep trying shit until you find stuff that works for you. Because Teddy Club is an act of fucking genius and it was invented by our five-year-old. A long live Teddy Club. It's great. I feel like at this point she's, she's practically parenting herself. Hashtag blessed. 
And actually, that segues beautifully onto what I've been reading. I have been sent some amazing books I cannot wait to share with you on our super special, exciting trip to the seaside to record our summer special. Oh, yes. This is the special summer special special announcement. Yeah. Well, we have been sent a stack of wonderful non-fiction for kids from I'd say the ages of about seven or eight through to mid to late teens one of the books is called can we talk about consent which is just brilliant got this book is anti-racist fall off get back on keep going some amazing ones about like the history of inventions backwards so going back through time and sort of you know this is what it was like before the mobile phone and then this is like before the phone and then this is what it's like before the telegram and oh and where everyday things go we've been having a really good time discovering what happens to poo and wee when you flush them and where our drinking water comes from and how those two things are connected so now they'll only drink orange squash because water is disgusting but yeah we are going to take these amazing books to the seaside and have our own little preview of what it would be like to read this astounding middle grade and younger non-fiction if one were on one summer holidays so we can bring the best of that to you guys before the schools break up what I've been reading is very, very, very different, Burn. It feels almost wrong to tack on what <laughs> I've been reading to the, the non-fic pod summer special, but I guess I'll go for it. It's actually a reread. I've been rereading Going Clear by Lawrence Wright. Have you read it? Have you heard of I it? I have not, but the cover looks astounding. Explain me. Oh, I explain you good. This is, it was banned. It's a national bestseller. Lawrence Wright is an American author who has written quite a few things, I believe. One of them was about Mormonism that I read recently. He also read quite an interesting book about Texas, God Save Texas, I think it was called, where I seem to remember he name dropped a lot of celebrities who just happened to pop around his house. But lots of fun facts. He has written this book, well, a long time ago now. Going Clear, Scientology, Hollywood, and the Prison of Belief. Oh. Yeah. Oh, indeed. It was turned into a movie, which is good, but not as good as this book, as the ways go. And it's a history of how Scientology developed. And it's so, so, so interesting. I am learning all about Elrond. And the guy was an absolute dickhead, but... What he managed to achieve, I don't know, it's horribly impressive. So I really recommend having a read and defying the Scientologist by picking it up. I guess it's one of those things, isn't it, when you you realise that someone has been incredibly successful in an enterprise that is almost entirely psychopathic, narcissistic, exploitative, and that sense of the admiration for somebody's sheer fucking moxie. Also, the horror of the fact that, you know, Scientology has left victims in its way. It's, I, I will pick that one up. Yeah. Recommend, recommend. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Nonfic Pod with Burn. Goodbye. And Cod. Goodbye. Our guest this week, remind me, I, I can't, who was, who did we have on? Dr. Bemo Burn? Dr. Embla Dr. Embla Buy her book. Pre-order her book. <laughs>
Get it now. God damn it. If you learn nothing else today, it is that. Support the authors, people. Ask for it in your local library if they have it as well. One of the biggest shit I wish I knowns is that libraries pay authors. You need never feel guilty for borrowing from a library. Whoop, whoop. Alrighty, see you next time. Whoop, libraries. <laughs> that was Emma Byrne, co-host of Blonde Fit Pod and author of How to Build a Human, which is out with profile books on the 24th of June. Now, you can pre-order the book as we speak, as this podcast goes out, which is just a little bit before the release date, by visiting our bookshop on bookshop.org. If you type in Nonfic Pod, Emma's book, How to Build a Human, is on there, and some of the proceeds will go towards supporting not only Emma and the podcast, but independent bookstore, bookstops, bookshops. You can also find Emma at www.emmaburn.net, that's burn, B-Y-R-N-E, and on Twitter with the handle at SciRiby, which is S-C-I-W-R-I-B-Y, also via here at NonFitPod. Thank you for listening to this episode of NonFitPod with Burn and Cod. NonFitPod is brought to you by Beatrice Bazell, Emma Burn, Georgie Cod, and Mike Wire. Thank you so much to all of our supporters, everyone who rates, reviews, subscribes and shares us. And thank you in particular to our patrons, who are Juliet Miller, Claire and Alexander, Nicola Myrams, Alexandra Coyne, David Corney and Mike Wire. Your continued support makes all the difference. subscribe to patreon today you'll be able to hear burn saying this vagina (laughs) and this anus true you can really help us by rating reviewing and sharing non-fic pod Every little helps to build our audience, and that means we get to share fantastic non-fiction with more people just like you. And it helps us to keep bringing you the greatest authors and the hottest reads. 